0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, as we read verses 8 through 11. Hear now the word of God. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we have had a week of struggles, of exhaustion, of distraction. Everything in us, perhaps, militates against hearing what you have to say to us today. And so even more, we beg you, send your spirit to open our eyes today so that we will hear what you speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You ever fall down a YouTube rabbit hole? Uh, I, I hope you don't. It's a huge waste of time. You can only watch so many cat videos, but I'm not sure that's true, actually. Um, But a a while back, I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole, and it was an educational YouTube rabbit hole, I swear. I was learning things, and uh, one of the things I was learning about was discussions about true north. How do you find true north? Uh, You know, I I was taught in Boy Scouts, you're supposed to have a compass on you at all times, and you're always supposed to find true north using that. Uh, However, there's a problem, it turns out, with using the magnetic poles of the earth to determine the north. Apparently, the magnetic poles shift and they move. And apparently, uh, there are fears that even the earth's magnetic poles might flip someday. Apparently, there's nothing to stop it. So all of this means that using magnets as your way of, of knowing north as you, uh, you may get, it may help you get, lo- get out of the wilderness, right, if you're lost. I think it's going to get you close enough to north that you can find which way are the other directions, but it will not be a good way of knowing what true north is because true north changes and varies depending on the magnetic poles of the earth. The best way, apparently, to find true north is actually not connected to the earth at all. Uh, If you want to know where true north is, the best way to find it is to look outside of ourselves into the heavens above. And I don't mean that spiritually. I mean that literally. Um, So if you know where the Big Dipper is, uh, if you're a, a skilled expert at finding the Big Dipper, then when you look at the Big Dipper, it lets your eyes drift down to the ladle part of the Big Dipper. And then you see those two stars at the end of the ladle. If you follow them outwards from the ladle then there's this brighter star that's out there, and that star is called Polaris. And what makes Polaris so special is that no matter where you are on Earth, if you are looking at Polaris, you are looking at true north. Um, And so if you were to stand, and this is true, if you were to stand, apparently, at the exact spot of the North Pole, and you were to look directly up into the night sky, you would be setting your eyes on Polaris, and Polaris would basically be immoving. It would just stand still, and it would trace a one-degree circle in the sky above you. Uh, that is Polaris. And so it's nearly motionless. Uh, people have known about Polaris for a long time. I guess the Lakota Indians used to call it the star that, sta- that sits still. Uh, sailors and navigators have used Polaris to find true north for thousands of years. And, and here's what stands out to me about Polaris. As I was listening to this and as I was watching this presentation, I was thinking to myself, you know, regardless of where you are, regardless of what is happening on earth, we always have a way of knowing the true direction of north in a way that doesn't depend upon us, that doesn't depend upon our planet even. It's always there. And the answer is 433 light years away with a star. And as I was thinking about these things, I was working on this sermon passage and I was thinking, how do I introduce the sermon passage? And Polaris presented itself. And the thing that strikes me about, about, about Polaris is this. Polaris is Polaris regardless of whether you know Polaris exists. Polaris has been true north apparently for earth for a very long time, as long as it's existed. And I never knew about it. And it was still Polaris. And whether we know about it or not, whether we have trouble finding our way, it's always there and it is not our fault that we don't know about it. Um, It doesn't change the fact that one of these stars, even if you're lost, it doesn't change the fact that one of these stars is actually telling you the truth that you need to know. And in the same way, uh, it does feel like it needs to be said in 2021, feels like it needs to be said in all ages, but it still feels relevant to say this, truth is truth regardless of what you think or feel about it. It's there. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy about problematic people in the church who, who know that there is truth. They know about God's law. They aren't unaware of it. And yet it's like they pick the wrong star and just start walking towards it. And the whole time they're thinking, that's it. That's Polaris. That's, that's where I need to be going to. And then what happens? Well, Paul says these people want to teach the law. They're aiming at Polaris, and yet what's the problem? They are walking east, and all the while they're telling everyone the law's over here. The law's over here. Let's go here. The truth is the truth. The truth isn't the problem here. Really, it's the interpreter of the truth who has the issues. It is these people who need to be rightly directed. And because they're moving in the wrong direction, they're walking in in circles, they're living in confusion, and they're leading other people to do the same. Timothy's going to have to face this serious problem, right? You can imagine... How the unity of the church in Ephesus would be shattered by these people who are devoting themselves to myths and endless speculations. We talked about this last week. Um, All the while, what are they doing? They're calling themselves teachers of the law. They're telling everyone, oh, I'm an expert. Listen to me. I know exactly what's going on. If that happens, if they continue to be followed, eventually you'll have a church that doesn't know which way is north. And chaos and, and anarchy will begin to tear the congregation apart. This is, this is why Paul left Timothy there. Because there was a need for this man to physically be present, to physically be instructing these people. Because they're not ready to stand on their own. Because the elders aren't in place yet. Because this church is still in a shaky spot. And so that's what Timothy's there for. And so Paul teaches us about three, of the, uh, three things about the law of God that we should observe, three things we can draw from this passage. The first is that uh, he teaches us about the practical law. He teaches us about the truthful law. And then he teaches us about the lawful law. Um, all, all of this is really Paul showing us Polaris. And, and he's telling us, keep your eyes in the right place. Make sure that you show others how to do the same. That's the great need for the church in Timothy's day, and it is the great need of the church in our own day. It's, it's still relevant. It is still a contemporary need. So first, this morning, Paul shows us the practical law. Uh, I, I want to convince you of this. Uh, I, I think that some of you, you may be convinced, but you may not believe it. <laughs> you may be convinced, but you may not believe it, that the Bible is a practical book, um, I'm not sure if you know this, I don't know if you really have been convinced of this in your own life, but when I say that the Bible is practical, what I mean is this, it leaves a mark on the the way that we live and why we live the way that we do. The, the Bible is not just an ideas book. Uh, the Bible is an action book. The Bible is a spiritual book, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't extend into the real world, that it doesn't touch our lives. Uh, and the book is, and the Bible is practical because of its content, Right? And its content is the very word of God. Uh, It's a book that's inspired by God, that's breathed out by God. Um, We have the truth that God wants us to know about him, about his son, and about ourselves in this book. So he's showing us the way of salvation here. He's showing us the way of life, not just how to be saved, but he's also showing us how to live. Uh, When I was, I used to be an atheist, As a teenager, I I did not believe in God. Um, I thought the universe was a cold, dead place. And I believed in my heart of hearts that eventually everything around us would die uh, of heat death in a cold and frosty fizzling out of existence. A very, very inspiring worldview that I held to. Uh, And I really believed that. I believed as I looked out at the stars, see all that black emptiness, eventually that's going to consume everything. And that really was the way that I saw all things. And I, and I believed human beings were all alone. We were all alone to figure these things out for ourselves. Um, and it was a very sad, empty view of the universe that I held. Now, eventually, I was persuaded that God, that God does exist, that, that the Christian worldview is reasonable, and, and, I, and I realized that I was deceived as a younger man, and that there really is a creator, that he really has plans for my life, that he really has plans for the lives of people around me. But as a young man, I was, as I was studying Christianity, I became convinced at one point that I needed to give my attention to the teachings of the Bible. So I became convinced of God's existence, but I wasn't exactly a Bible person. Uh, I was a history person. I was interested in historical argumentation. I was interested in apologetics. But there was this moment where it occurred to me that, that, that if, if I, as I'm studying Christianity, I thought I was, I said, I am sure that if God exists, then he has spoken to us. And if God has spoken, then I need to listen to what he has to say. So even as this young man who I'd been raised up in the church, but I was basically being a free thinker and coming to these things basically on my own without my pastor's help, without my family's help. But I was sure of this. I was sure that the creator's words to human beings actually mattered, that I actually ought to be reading this book. And I wanted to know what he had to say. I was, I was, I really was ready to live my life by that. I really was ready to stop listening to the talking heads in my own life. Um, I wouldn't have put it this way, but I was ready to make God's word my true north. And it just, there was this moment where I just realized that if He's there, I need to listen. And if He's there, and if He's spoken. That he cares about how I'm living my life. It matters to me how I'm living. To, it matters to God how I'm living. It, it, he cares about my thoughts. I was sure that if he was the creator, he knew what I was thinking. He knew uh, what I believed. Uh, he knew how I was living. And, and I was sure that if God was the creator and Jesus Christ is his son, then I, could, that I couldn't go back to being the exact same person I was before. And that in Christ, he intended to redeem and change me. All of these things start falling into place once you understand who the creator is and what he has to say. Now, all of that is, is me trying to say something to you, something I hope I can get across to you that I want to resonate with you loud and clear, that now, no matter how old you are, whether you are four years old and you're just learning to sit in the service uh, without wiggling around too much, or, or whether you are many years experienced in the faith, And maybe trying to learn how to sit without wiggling around too much. Um, I want you to hear loud and clear. We read this book because in it, God tells us what we need to know about life. Yes, we can get into the details at times, right? Like there are nerds among us. And I will leave us all unidentified, but you can probably just think about who we are. There are nerds among us who will argue about small details in this book, and, and that can make it look like it's only a book for scholars. That it, it communicates a misunderstanding if that's what you see when you hear people argue about details. But but actually, we pay attention to the little details because all of it is inspired. So every little detail matters. Getting every little part of the text right matters. Uh, and, and it matters because the Bible is not an impractical book that is just filled with ideas for arguing fine points of theology with each other. It's not a book that's meant to help us just play mental Sudoku with each other. It is the creator speaking. This, is, this book is the creator speaking and he speaks because he cares about us. He cares about our lives. He knows about your hurt And in this book, he addresses it, and he speaks to it. And he knows about your struggles, and he speaks to them. He gives you tools to deal with the hardest things that come up in your life. And more intimately than that, he knows what your heart is like, and he knows what your heart needs most. And by the way, he knows that your heart is the most troubled thing of all, and he also knows that the heart is the most difficult thing in all the universe to control, and he speaks to it. Now, you might think to yourself, you know, you should go back to this text again. You have gone very far off course. Well, I hope that's not the case. I'm I'm trying to argue here that the Bible is a very practical book, that the Bible has implications for how we live every single day. Look what happens in verses 8 to 11. You don't get much more practical than this, right? He's talking about life here. Verses 8 to 11, what do we have? It is a catalog of the practical ways that this book speaks to the human heart and life. A catalog of things. It's not even exhaustive. He's just scratching the surface, right? Do you know any sexually immoral people? This book is practical. Do you know any liars? This book is practical. Paul is saying that. He's saying, Go to this book, read the scriptures. Do you know any lawless people who don't like following rules? I know we don't have any of those in Portland, but the rest of the, the nation could really use this, right? Um, this book is for lawless people who don't like following the rules. Do you know people who disrespect their parents? This is a book that's for people like that. And by the way, that's not just a children's problem, that's an adult problem too. See, if we're honest, if we're honest, we all belong in this list somewhere. And we belong in the whole spectrum of this list. You fit between one of these things. Maybe, maybe you've not murdered, but you fit somewhere between murder and disrespecting your parents, I'm sure. Um, all of us are in this list. All of this is practical. And so in this book, what, God, what, is, what happens? God speaks to the heart, which is the source of all of these things. And so when he does that, he's speaking to life. See, there's this tight connection here between practice and doctrine. Practice and doctrine, they're wedded together. Listen to the way he talks. He lists off all these sinful practices that the law addresses, and then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in verse 10. And if you're, if you're reading this list, you think to yourself, no, you were just listing off a bunch of sins. You weren't talking about doctrines. And that's actually the point. If you notice that, that's actually the point. All of these practical, real-world things are contrary to sound doctrine. So the the implication here is doctrine has these practical outworkings. It shows up in how we live. It shows up in, in every part of our lives. Because what you believe impacts what you do. See, first error is taught, then it is lived out. Sound doctrine presents an unsound life. What does Peter say in 2 Peter 1.3? He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So what does that mean? Knowledge of these things has an impact, Peter says. It doesn't just become an idea that floats in our heads, and now we have more ideas than the person next to us. That's not what he's saying. Peter is saying, In our life, this knowledge has an impact in our godliness, in our souls. All of these things matter. They are not nebulous notions and ideas that we, that we pursue because we just don't have anything else to fill our life up with. He's saying all of this knowledge that God has for us in this book changes me and changes everywhere else that I come in contact with. And that knowledge that changes everything is found in God's law. It's found in God's word. How can this not be absolutely practical? I really hope and and I pray each week as you're studying the scripture on your own and, I, and as I preach God's word for you that, that the spirit convinces you of the importance of what is said in this book, that this is not just a, oh, it's Sunday, it's time to hear him talk about spiritual things and I don't live in that world so I'm going to go the rest of the week as if I didn't hear those things because those things don't matter to me that is not the case at all Um, there is there is nothing I want more than for you to be impacted and changed by God's word that's why Paul puts such a premium on this when he's talking to Timothy because God's word is practical Because God's word actually touches the life. It's the practical law. That's the first point this morning. But that leads us to point two. It's the truthful law. Because look, Paul implies this in verse eight. He says, we know the law is good. Something cannot be good if it isn't true. Um, And we know this from abundant testimony of the rest of scripture. He says in verse 10, if we stray from this law, we stray from what is sound. Here's the reality. If God's word is practical and it's not just abstract arguments, I've been trying to show you this, then that means that it practically matters that we interpret this book rightly. It means that if this book is practical and we get it wrong, then it's going to show up in our lives that we interpreted this book wrong and that we had a wrong attitude toward it in the first place. So you need to be convinced that what God actually says here is actually true because it's central to Paul's application, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you two verses that, that show you this. One is Psalm 119:160. 160. Uh, psalm 119 is a psalm where the writer is extolling in every single verse the excellence and perfection of God's word. If you ever need to be reminded of why the Bible is so important to us, just read Psalm 119. Uh, the psalmist is there and ready to give you lots of reasons that you want to pay attention to the scripture. But listen to what he says. He says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So that that alone actually should keep us from going, Well, this was relevant in 1000 BC, but not today. Because what does he say? He says, Every one of your righteous rules endures forever practical significance of this book doesn't disappear because now we have jet planes in the internet then you have jesus his own statement about the truthfulness of god's word he prays to the father he's in the garden he's he's speaking to the father right before he's about to be executed he's praying and he's weeping and he, he's sweating and he's sweating blood And here he is and he's praying for his people. What does he pray for his people? He says, he prays to the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He is at once praying to the Father that God's people would be convinced that God's word is the place to go. Everything contained in this word of God is true. Every word contained in it is trustworthy. This is seriously important. This is seriously relevant in the moment we live in, right? Because we live in a cultural moment, certainly in the West, where trust in institutions and leaders is probably the lowest lowest that it's ever been. Um, whether that is a news institution, whether that's a political institution, sadly, even medical institutions, even religious institutions, you name it, and people find themselves thinking, seriously, what is true? Even something as simple as what happened or at X or Y event, people debate whether or not something actually happened or not. So we have, a, we have a crisis of trust. We don't have a crisis of truth. We have a crisis of trust. Truth is real. Again, we talked about Polaris before. Truth is real regardless of what people think about it. But we have a crisis of trust where people are saying, who can I trust? Who can I believe? Where can I find the truth? And not have to ask whether it's real or not. And Jesus comes to us and Jesus says, there may be great confusion around. People may lie to each other, manipulate information for their own gain, even offer confusing accounts of events to muddy the water. But God's word is true. You can know that it's true because it comes from God and because you can trust God. So these scriptures that Paul is, is pointing Timothy to are inerrant. They're infallible. It's probably a good idea for me to say something about those two words. I introduce the reading of God's word each morning, and I say that this is an, in, his inerrant and infallible word. What do I mean by those two words? Um, inerrancy means that the Bible doesn't endorse anything untrue. The Bible actually contains an accurate record of the truth. That's what inerrancy means. Infallibility, on the other hand, means that not only does it not contain errors, but that it is incapable of containing errors. Um, It's infallible because it came from God and because God cannot lie. So its infallibility is rooted in and tied to the infallibility of the one who inspired the word. So if you can trust God, then you can trust anything that God says. Uh, And it's inerrant because it actually contains only truth, Uh, in case some of you ever wondered about the difference between inerrancy and infallibility and whether they're the same thing. Um, Paul tells us about this word in his next letter to Timothy. Someday we will get to 2 Timothy, I'm sure. But he says says these words, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's breathed out by God. It, it comes from the one who has the authority to speak and that we can trust. Paul invents a word. As far as we know, this word didn't exist in Greek literature before Paul said it. Thea nustas. Take those two words together. It's the breathing, it's the spirit, and it's the word. And both of the are in God. And and he takes those two words, he mashes them together, he invents a word, which admittedly the Greeks did. And and he says, that's what the Bible is. It's thea nustas. It's God breathed. It's as though it came out of him. You can trust it like you can trust him. Now we're surrounded by people. They offer their opinions. This is a world filled with opinions. But people with opinions aren't real authorities. They don't really know. God however, is the, is the ultimate authority. So these words that he breathed out are as trustworthy and as, as authoritative as him. They are his words. And so we can believe them. We can believe them down to the letter in an age when news programs are devoted to not even saying what people's opinions are, but picking apart people's opinions, right? You're talking next level of the next level of the next level of let's waste our time. (laughs) Um, We devote ourselves to picking apart not just teachings, but the opinions and feelings of fallible human beings. You'll get news stories like somebody owns someone on Twitter. And you're like, what good does that do me? How does that change the world that somebody got into an argument on Twitter about something? We sit on social media, we argue with complete strangers who are already unpersuadable about things that other people have said, and yet hear constantly, consistently, like a drumbeat. We have the very words of God always here, ready for our meditation, ready to feed us, ready to give us what we actually need to be spending our time on each day while we busy ourselves with the nonsense of people squawking at each other. Paul speaks of the truth of Scripture when he talks about these saints in Ephesus. The, the truth is there. It's not missing. It's not absent. The Bible deserves their, their close attention, and it means that they have an incredible duty to read it well and to read it carefully and to read it attentively. I, attentive reading of Scripture is sometimes really rare. I remember something happened to me when I was in Mississippi. I was preaching one time at a country church, it was in. I think it was Union, Mississippi. There are two. There's a Union Church, Mississippi, which I've preached at, and then there's a Union, Mississippi, which I've preached at, and I can't remember which church it was. Uh, I think one of the churches though had a pillow sitting in the pulpit that the Bible sat on, and I think that was Union Church. That one always struck me because I've never had a pillow to set a Bible on before. Uh, but I believe it was Union, Mississippi. I remember what happened. It never happened at any other church that I visited. Uh, And I would say, uh, let's open and read from God's word. And you heard this shuffling throughout the room. Every person in the room had been taught to pull out their Bible and turn the pages. And you heard it like a, it was like a fluttering across the room. And, and I remember during the sermon, just seeing for the first time, I didn't see it in, in all the churches in Mississippi, but they were trained on you, and they were listening carefully to what you had to say. It was like they were convinced that God's word was really important and deserved their attention. It was the first time where after church, people came to me at the door and wanted to talk about the sermon and not a football game. Uh, and I just remember, I just remember being really struck by the attentiveness they, there was this ingrained belief that what this word says is really important. And I remember it, it was the first time that I thought, oh, wow, people can really be attentive to what God has to say. And the stakes are high. That's why we need to be attentive to it, right? The stakes are high because, because if we don't set our eyes on Polaris, we're going to go off in the wrong direction. And, and, and look, this is what Paul says. Again, he says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So... The onus is on us to interpret it truthfully. We need to use it lawfully, the way Paul puts it. God gives the truth. God brings the truth. He exposes the truth. We have the responsibility to read and teach the truth. And yet we're not alone in this. You remember that hymn we sang right before, our hymn of preparation, right? The spirit moves upon the word. Uh, the, The spirit brings God's truth to light. So we're not, it's not like in isolation, we're supposed to using our own human reason and abilities, read this word and understand it. God says, no, I'm not leaving you alone to figure these things out for yourself. The law isn't self-interpreting. We have to do the work. Uh, Its readers have a duty to make sure to understand its true meaning through discipline and practice and effort and prayer. In other words, it takes effort, which many today don't want to make. Many don't want to make it. This is really important in our day because some people, even Christians who've been influenced by the spirit of the age, they believe that the Bible means whatever you think it means. Um, By the way, that's not a misrepresentation. I I was amazed to hear from a friend not too long ago about a Bible study that he went to. He was invited to it. And when he went there, there were so many people in the group who were saying, they were saying, you know, the Bible just, this means this to me. And when he wanted to talk about what the text actually meant, they said, well, look, this is, this is God's word, but, but it can mean a lot of things. And the implication of what they were saying was, look, I have my opinion of this text. You have your opinion of this text. Really, who's right and who's wrong? And, and the reality is, no, that's, a, that's the mentality of someone who says, I don't really want to know what God says. I really want to bring what I want to the Bible. And so uh, we, some, some Christians believe that the Bible means whatever you think it means or worse, yet what you want it to mean. And yet one of the chief concerns of Paul here is that there is a wrong way to read and apply the Bible. There are people who will open this book, they will read from it, and then they will say something other than what the text says. Just because we have it in writing in a book doesn't mean that the sinful hearts won't be eager to twist it they won't be eager to misrepresent represent it in fact that's just in our nature to take what God says and to skew it and twist it and confuse it the Bible is a book with God's intended meaning the meaning of the author the one who who wrote it who inspired it but it's our duty to take this book and to read it for what it is and what it says not for what we wish it said so this is really practical this is very practical what it means is that when we hear, for example, a sermon or when we read God's word on our own, as we come to the text, we should ask one question, Lord, what have you said here? What does this text say? Not, Lord, what do I feel like I would like to hear today from this? So those are, those are two very different postures. One is receptive. God, give it to me. And then the other one is creative. I'm going to bring and invest in this text what I think it would be great if this text said. Those are really twisted, very different ways of thinking about the text. What you believe about the word impacts how you're going to approach the word. Paul sets this before Timothy. He sets before him the second reality that he wants him to treasure. It's the truthful law. It's the truthful law. Third this morning, Paul sets before us the lawful law. You know, one of the resounding messages of this teaching is that the law is good, but it can be misused. He says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Just because we have something good doesn't mean it can't be twisted. In fact, uh, in this case, it is being misused and it is being misinterpreted. Again, very practical, boots on the ground. This is really happening. This is not abstract. Now, Paul doesn't get specific about what they're teaching I think sometimes part of the reason Paul doesn't get explicit about what they're teaching is, I don't think he wants to spread it any further. So he addresses it without addressing it. (laughs) He doesn't want to repeat the error. And so instead, he talks about how to address the error in the situation in which someone finds themselves. But he he addresses a couple of problems in this letter that give us a hint to what he's dealing with. So in chapter 4, he's concerned about certain people prohibiting marriage. And prohibiting certain foods. He mentions both of those problems. And so what seems to be happening is there's this unnecessarily narrow reading of the law of Moses going on. People are going into the church. What are they doing? They're taking the food laws. They're taking the cleanliness laws. And they're taking it to the next level. They're making rules uh, about food and marriage that are based on twisted readings of scriptural passages. Uh, the laws in, intended to convict people of sin and have an impact in their lives, right? So when, when Paul says that the law is not laid down for the just, he's not tackling the whole issue of whether the law has any role in the life of Christians. Instead, he appears to be talking about people who take the law in one area and they lean on it and they major on it and they focus on it. But then in every other area of their life, they're libertines. They just live however they want. So they they focus on the part they're really good at. And let's face it, we're really good at this, right? We find one part of the Christian life that we're so good at. We find one part of the Christian life where we say, you know, I'm really, this is an area where uh, somehow God has been kind to me. So I'm successful in this area, so I'm going to lean on it. And then all these other areas that God also speaks to, we say, I'm going to be imbalanced. It's fine. And, and Paul seems to be dealing with somebody like that here. Um, Jesus is constantly dealing with this problem in the Pharisees, right? In many ways, we, we look at the Pharisees and what do you have? You have these very righteous men. They, they, they avoid certain things. They don't do certain things. And yet they have this whole blind spot in their life, which is their interior life. Their whole interior life is messed up. Jesus says, your outside is whitewashed inside it's dead men's bones. Right? Outside, the cup is clean. You guys look great. And on the inside, you're wretched. You're miserable. So what have they done? They found an area of, the, uh, of uh, spiritual life that they said, this is great. I'm good at this. Let's keep doing this. I'm good at putting up a front. Let's make a whole system around putting up a front. And they do it. So to use Paul's terminology, they didn't use the law lawfully in keeping with its own teachings. So what does Jesus do with them? He sits down and he says, read God's word again. Read the rest of it. Stop majoring on the minors. See, Paul has no reason to fear the law. He has no reason to avoid the law. But there are people who ought to have this attitude toward the law. There are some people in our society, they'd be very offended by some of the things Paul lists in this list. Verse 9, right? He says, The unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. There are sins in this list that just hearing them out loud makes people uncomfortable. Maybe right now, I just read that, and you think, when are the feds going to kick in the door and come through the door? Now, it's not going to happen, but... (laughs) But you feel that, don't you? Because you know that it is offensive in of the spirit of our age. It's actually more important in an environment like that that God gives us that list than in an environment where it would be perfectly acceptable. Um, because here's what happens. We need to be given this list because the things that we resist in that list are the very things that if you gave us a few generations, we'd never mention it again. It would disappear. And we would forget that it even mattered. So it's very, very kind of God to put things in that list that buck against our own time because because we need him to say it because instinctively we would run from it, right? We tiptoe. There are things we tiptoe around in the text. The modern impulse is not to mention those things. You know, we fear. We say, what happens to my job if, if I affirm that, yes, God says this and it's true? If it was up to us in 2021, we would let some of these sins drift away and we would not give our attention to them. We wouldn't talk about homosexuality at all. That's not going to win us any supporters. It's also an argument for why we've just received it and God has said it, right? Because we would not choose it naturally. And so you see, as time goes on and as the society becomes more desensitized, more and more, we're going to be seen as more odd, not less odd, because we will say, yes, God said this. And I do believe that God is truthful. He wouldn't lie to us. This is a sin along with all the other things that Paul mentions here. And so the fact that Paul wrote it protects us from drift, doesn't it? it? It protects us from drift if we're committed to believing all the words that are here. And so the way we might naturally, impulsively want to is we would want to drift away. Our tendency is to loosen, not tighten, I think. Our tendency is to loosen, not tighten. So the law is read... And when we read God's law, it's like God is shining a light on the dark places of our own heart and of our own culture. And he is reminding us this is true regardless of what your society has been saying to you year in and year out, over and over again. The culture is catechizing you. They're speaking into your ear. And they say it enough times into your ear that you start to think that they're right. Or even if you don't start to think that they're right, you might start to feel that they're right. Right and wrong don't change with the times. They're fixed. They're true. Even if someone opens the Bible and misinterprets it for all to hear. God and his will do not change with the times. I think we need to be reminded of that. uh, Malachi 3, 6, uh, God is speaking to Israel. One of the promises he makes is that he's not going to destroy the people. How do they know he won't destroy them? He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. My character is the same today as it was yesterday. And it's going to be the same tomorrow as it was yesterday as well. God is saying, I am immovable. Yes, the culture around you, malleable, changeable, it it warps, it changes. Uh, One day it's like this, the next day it's like that. One day something is acceptable. Two years later, it's the evilest thing anybody ever saw, right? That's the way our culture is. The rules are getting made up on the fly, and they're being made up quickly. And you have to keep up with them, or you get left behind. And God says, it's not like that with me. Stick with me, stick with what I say, Guide your life by my word, and you won't be set adrift. I just have a really simple application. Uh, It's an application that's not very fancy, and that's this. Commit yourself that you will be a person of truth and that your life will be guided and protected and hemmed in by the truth. Commit yourself to resisting dishonesty and spin, even from your own tribe. Ask God to help you grow in your wisdom and in your ability to read and interpret his word. We need to get better at it. We can get better at it. He expects us to. Uh, God says, my word matters, so get better at listening to me. Become a student of the word. Memorize the word. This is true, so live your life by it. He says, ask God to give you his spirit so that, that you live as a Christian who doesn't just have sound doctrine, but a sound life. You have sound doctrine. He's already told us here, you will have a sound life as well. Now, all that begins, though, with what Paul says here today. And here's what he says. He says, by going to the word and saying, Lord, what do you want me to know? And how do you want me to live to please you? Let's pray together. Lord, we are adrift at sea, lost in the wilderness, like a ship without a rudder if you do not speak to us. And we thank you that you are truth, that your word is truth. We thank you that your son is the way and the truth and the life. You are our North Star. You are the unchanging one that we can, we can and must always look to. Would you persuade us of that, O God? Would you protect us from the errors of this age and cause us to depend upon and love the scriptures, which is you speaking to us? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Mm